Anyway, uh, be very helpful to have your Bible open in front of you, so keep it open, and the outline which is in your uh, bulletin, that'll help as well. Um, we're going to have a and a time at the end, um, so that'll be interesting as well, won't it? Okay, and don't forget to use the comment card box. You know, one of our... Um, one of our commitments here at Robertson Anglican Church is what's called consecutive, consecutive expository preaching. That is, we preach through a book following a narrative, uh, an argument or a structure. We read it in context, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, as it's written. We follow it that way. We, that way we try to do our best to work out what the author is saying. And so it's called expository because we get the meaning out of the text. It comes out of the text. It exits out of the text. That's what we try to do. So in other words, God sets the agenda. So we give God the microphone. That's what we're trying to do as we preach in this way. It means we don't pick and choose on account of how hard the passage is or whether the passage conflicts with my experience or what I hold as authoritative. We just preach on what is coming up next as the author has written. Now, we believe that all of God's word, uh, all of the Bible is God's word and therefore it's relevant. We believe that scripture has authority over and above my feelings. It has authority over and above my experiences, uh, my culture. And sometimes, like the passage we meet today, this belief or trust in God's word as having authority is tested. Uh, especially when it grates against popular culture, uh, political correctness, or my feelings and experiences. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 to 16 is that type of controversial passage. So we need God's help in this difficult passage. It's a difficult subject as well. And we need to ask him to give us the humility to keep trusting his word, especially when it's hard. We need to ask for wisdom. We need to ask for grace. We need to ask for humility. So let's do that. Let's ask. Father, we do. We do ask for those things. Uh, we know that your word is good and we, we want to trust it. Help us to do that, even when it's really difficult and it, and it conflicts the, with the way we think about things in this world. Um, Lord, we pray for wisdom. We, we pray for grace. We pray for humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a strange sort of way, we could say that this passage is rather timely. Um, headdressings, uh, veils... Uh, coverings that have been in the news lately. Did you see Pauline Hanson's stunt in the Senate uh, a couple of weeks back? Now, not for one moment am I suggesting that this has anything to do with what we're reading in the Bibles today. But it does beg the question, it sort of brings up this topic of um, whether what we wear says something about us, who we are and what we believe. Uh, so if I go around wearing all dragons gear, so St George Illawarra dragons, not only would Gordon get cranky at me, um, but you know the full kit. All right, the, we've got some dragons. Benny, you a dragon supporter? Roosters. Roosters. I know this family's in conflict at the moment, but anyway, let's. Um, uh, <laughs> so if I wear the whole, you know, the dragons, the dragon stuff, dragon shoes, dragon socks, dragons, you know, dragons tracky pants, shirt, jacket, cap, scarf. The works. And then someone comes up to me and says, I see you're a Manly fan. What? <laughs> that, that wouldn't make sense, would it? Clothing often says something about us, and what we believe, who we might follow. And it's the same, of course, in the first century in Corinth. Uh, clothing had meaning. 
But in the end, what really matters, just like a football fans and their gear, is not really the clothing itself, but what the clothing represents. You know, that my heart bleeds dragons. Is that what they say? I think they might say that. Anyway. Okay, we'll come back to that in a few moments. But let's go to chapter 11 and uh, we'll, see a bit. we'll see how this clothing is clothing with meaning. Paul begins this section in verse 2 uh, praising the church. Uh, they're remembering the Christian teachings or traditions that Paul's uh, received and passed on to them. So it's good news as he starts this section of the letter. This section of the letter is chapters 11 to 14. It really deals with church and how church works and what's God's good order as the Christian church in Corinth and Robertson comes together. Okay, um, But... Verse 3 really begins with a but. It's missed in the NIV, unfortunately. Paul needs to address an issue that's come up in their meetings. A correction is needed. Verse 3 is a key verse. Uh, it's, a key, it's the key verse that really unlocks everything else in this passage. It's the framework that we can understand what follows. We get this and then, well, we'll get the rest, I hope. Uh, and a warning, we're going to spend a lot of time in verse 3, okay? Let's read it. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there's two important and difficult questions we need to ask and try to answer to understand this verse, and you can see them there on your outlines. The first is, what's the meaning of the word head? It's used a few times, isn't it, in different uh, relationships in this verse. Now, there's two options here. One option could be source, as in the source of a river is the head, the head of the river. Uh, or it could be authority over. I see three reasons why head here is authority over rather than source. The first is that in ancient Greek literature, almost always uh, that word, or it's kephale in the Greek, is always, it always means authority over, especially when it's used in the context of human relationships. Secondly, when Paul uses the word um, elsewhere in, in relation to Christ, it always has the sense of authority over. So Ephesians 1 and 4 and 5, Colossians 1 and 2, it's Jesus has authority over. And I guess we could add third, that source, if, as we keep reading through the argument in chapter 11, doesn't really make sense um, when, in, in Paul's argument, if we, if we translated the word as source, head meaning source. Now, if this understanding is correct, that head means authority over, therefore it has implications. So, from verse 3 again, especially how we understand the relationships of God, or the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, that there's order and authority in those relationships. So, whilst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God, the Bible says that very clearly, this sameness doesn't prevent differentiation and order. That is, the Father, Son and the Spirit are equal but different. It's a helpful phrase to remember. In other words, the relationships of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit demonstrate to us that you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without inferiority and superiority of dignity and value. I'm going to say that again because it's a really important sentence. All right. What the Trinity demonstrates, and we see it in verse 3, is that you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without 
inferiority or superiority of dignity and value. Now, this is something that troubles people. In fact, it might even offend some people today. We often hear it argued that two people, for two people to be equal, well, they must do the same thing. They must have the same role, the same authority, and then they're equal. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, not what verse 3 teaches us or the rest of the Bible teaches us, especially when it comes to the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and consequently the relationships between men and women in marriage and in the church, in Christian marriage and in the church. So like the relationships in the Trinity, there can be order and authority with equality. Now, there's a number of other verses we could go to there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. John 3:16. the Father sends the Son. Philippians 2, uh, every knee will bow before the Son. Now, back to verse 3 then. So the Bible teaches, uh, for God to be Christ's head doesn't mean, therefore, that Jesus is any less God or inferior. It means that Jesus, in his love for us, in obedience to the Father, willingly submits himself to the will of the Father. Willingly submits himself to the headship of the Father. The Garden of Gethsemane is a great example of that going on. It means, therefore, as Paul goes on to argue, that whatever God has to say to us about authority and order in relationships originates from the life of God. Okay, how about the second question? It comes up in 11 verse 3 again. Um, Is it man and woman or husband and wife? Because as we read other Bible translations, and perhaps you've got an ESV open in front of you, or maybe you read that at home, or or an NRSV, um, the first phrase is the same in verse 3. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ. that's, uh, That's translated the same way. But following that, the second phrase in the ESV or the NRSV could be read, or they, they translate it, the head of the wife is the husband. Now, in our, in our NIV, it's translated, um, and the head of the woman is man. You see, in the Greek, it's the same word. The same word for husband and man um, is uh, that one word, and it's the same word for wife and, and woman as well. Actually, I'll say that again because I didn't say it properly. Um, the word for husband and man is the same, and the word for wo- wife and woman is the same. Okay. So we need to know, really, don't we? We need to know, is Paul referring to husbands and wives, or is he referring to men and women generally? It makes quite a difference in the passage, as we'll see. The way translators make that decision, and also for us, is, um, is the context. That's how we make that decision. So it works a little like this. Okay? Wes has got a new jacket. All right? He's got a nice jacket. And he goes up to his friends and, and says to his mates, do you like my jacket? It's really cool, isn't it? And his friends go, yeah, man, that's a really cool jacket. I like your cool jacket. Now, friends, Wes is not saying that his jacket keeps him cool. That wouldn't be a very good jacket anyway, would it? Um, he's not saying that. He's saying that his jacket really looks good. And his friends are saying that his jacket looks good as well. You see, cool has two meanings. So we need the context to work out what's really going on, what's being said. It's the same here as we work out whether Paul's referring to men and women generally or husbands and wives. I think uh, it's men and women more generally. Here's why I think that. First, I think it'd be weird if Paul was to suddenly switch from referring to men and women generally in that first phrase that we were mentioning in verse 3, and then, remember it's the same Greek word, switch over to husbands 
in the second phrase of verse 3. And then switch back to men and women, men more generally in verse 4. Now the same can be said about woman, the word for woman, in verses 3 and 5. It makes more sense to translate the same word in the same way each time. Second, what Paul goes on to say in verses 7 to 9, and we'll get to it later on, about human um, beginnings uh, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and that and then later in verses 11 to 12 about future generations, only really makes sense if we apply, um, if they apply to men and women more generally. They just don't make sense if they're just husbands and wives. And I reckon there's a third reason too. If Paul is referring specifically to husbands and wives, well, what about singles and widows? Uh, we know there are single people and widows in the church. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 addressed them. So what about them? Um, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. I think it's men and women more generally. So what are the implications then? What are the implications for male-female relationships? Uh, verse 3 says that the head of the woman is man. What does that mean for us today? Let's note first what it does not say. It does not say that all women are to submit to all men. It doesn't say that. The focus is on headship. It's not on submission. It also does not say that women are second-class citizens with any less dignity, intelligence, worth or purpose than men. Remember our discussion of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is not any less God because his head is God. Remember that? But Paul also doesn't say there's no difference between the in, the, in the relationship between men and women. The clear assumption in verse 3 is that just like there is order in the relationship between Christ and God, there is also order in the relationship between men and women. But verse 3 leaves us hanging just a little bit. See, there's no details of what it means that man is the head of woman. In the end, it's a statement of principle that informs the rest of the passage, um, which we'll get to sometime after lunch when this sermon eventually finishes. No, just kidding. Um, so we've got to ask them, what, what type of relationships does this headship of man and woman in verse 3 apply to? What type of relationships? See, it's one thing for Michelle to say from Ephesians 5 that Graham is my head. Um, she'll actually explain what that means in a few moments. But then it's quite another thing for her to say the head of the woman is man. There's a difference, isn't there? It doesn't mean that chivalry is um, alive and well. You know, that the ship is sinking. Women and children first. Let's open the door to women. Does it mean that? Uh, maybe. Don't think so. Uh, doesn't mean that women can't be CEOs of companies, that they can't raise, rise in the ranks of, of the police, of the military, um, whatever it might be. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's got anything to do with that whatsoever. Uh, some people have said that, and I think they're, I think they're wrong. Um, the Bible really doesn't have much to say on what this headship, that, that, that the head of the woman is man, looks like. We really, don't, we really only get a handful of examples and only in particular situations and relationships. So in 1 Corinthians 11, it meant that when men and women come together to prophesy, they'll do different things with their heads in first century Corinth. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, it meant that women weren't able to evaluate prophecies in the public church meetings. In 1 Timothy 2, it meant that women weren't to teach or have authority over men generally in the church. 
And in, in marriage, in Christian marriage, it meant that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands and that husbands are to self-sacrificially to love their wives. Does it mean more than that? Any more than that? Well, the Bible, the truth is the Bible doesn't really say. And we can only work with what the Bible says. It's as if the headship Paul is talking about here in verse 3 is potential headship that becomes actual headship in specific situations. That is, in the leadership in the church community and in, Christian, in the Christian marriage relationship. Whatever the case is, there's no sense that all women are to submit to all men or that women may not exercise God-honouring authority in the workplace, in the military, or whatever. And also what we see in chapter 11 is that women are gifted and encouraged to exercise public ministry within the church, uh, just in a way that's sensitive and consistent with the distinctions between men and women that God has ordained. Okay, there's a lot in that, isn't there? And we're still going. Um, let, let's pause for a minute and let's think about one of those examples. Uh, one of those examples, we'll think about headship and submission in the Christian marriage relationship. Uh, it's one example of why women in the first century Corinth wore head dressing, uh, why they wore something on their heads. That is to, dif to dif uh, differentiate, differentiate between the roles of men and women. Um, I've asked my lovely, beautiful wife uh, to come and share with us about what that means from a woman's perspective, headship and submission. Over to you, my dear. I'll let you into a little secret. I actually wrote this little spiel for exactly the same sort of circumstance um, about four years ago, and when I look back on it, I still agreed with it. So if something I wrote four years ago I still agree with, I think that's, that's a start. <laughs> so we're looking at how it expresses, the idea of headship and submission expresses itself in practice in a marriage. Um, and when people ask me that, I generally say, don't ask me, I'm no expert. Uh, one thing that I am an expert on, though, I suppose, is my own marriage. Uh, and so I'll tell you a little bit about how we have muddled through on this topic over the last 20 or so years. Uh, but before I do, I want to make it really clear that it's my view that just as each of us are different, so each combination of people in a marriage is different. And the last thing I want you to hear me saying is, do this, don't do this. You will not walk away uh, today with a neat list of jobs and attitudes that will make you the perfect example of headship and submission. How it works in practice is different for all of us. When I think about the word submission, I think it has gathered some baggage over the centuries that it probably didn't have in the New Testament context. Um, just a little side note, I googled teaching submission like a couple of months ago. I remember that I did it, but I don't remember why I did it, but I do remember that the first few pages of results were to do with uh, training dogs. So teaching submission, that is, the word, that is what the word means in our world now. Um, I don't think that's what it meant in the New Testament times. And so there's a whole lot of stuff that comes along with that word now um, that is, uh, is not the same as what was meant. I think that what both Jesus and Paul taught about marriage was actually incredibly countercultural and freeing. Men sacrificing their own desires for their wives to the point of their own death? What? 
women engaging with and loving their husbands instead of just being chattels. That's amazing. So we need to get in that headspace instead of, and instead of hearing submission equals slavery, hear submission equals being held in strong arms that you can trust. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Well, I think it is. I think submission is about trusting Graham, that he is kind and good and will not put himself first. It's about trusting that he wants my best, will seek to meet my needs and will put me first. That sounds all right. The flip side of that is that I will be putting his needs first and seeking to serve him in all my decisions. It means that I voluntarily lean towards yielding rather than domineering. And headship is about taking responsibility to care for the wife, who, that's me, who is trusting you to do that. And although it works beautifully when both partners are participating, as we are, of course, 24-7, we are actually each called to do our part regardless of whether the other is doing theirs. This is hard. But that's the same in all our relationships, isn't it? We are called to godliness even when others hate us or hurt us. Now, for Graham and I, this means that communication is key. How can he sacrifice himself for me if he doesn't know what I need or want? How can I serve him if he doesn't tell me how he's feeling? For us, as a corollary of that, it's never been about Graham having the last word in decision-making or bossing me around in some way. I feel that that would be a distortion of this teaching. And I have never felt like a doormat or that I have no say in things. And if you know me, you'll know that I'm not afraid to speak my mind in an appropriate and loving way, of course. We are equal in this marriage. We just approach our relationship from slightly different angles. Trust being foremost in my mind, responsibility being foremost in his. And perhaps it's God's way of preventing men and women from allowing their particular weaknesses to dominate, lazy men who won't step up, or women who want to control their husbands. I don't know. But for us, those two words, trust and responsibility, have been our key ideas. Thank you, Maria. I think, um, I don't know, I think maybe, can, you, can we do this every day? That'd be helpful, wouldn't it? Um, helpful for me, anyway. Um, no, can you read that out to me every day? That'd be helpful. I'd like that. I need a reminder, you know, we do. I think I do, anyway. Uh, can I say something else that's obviously very serious, too? Friends, tragically, um, because at times the Bible's, the Bible's teaching on headship and submission has been distorted, I, I want to make something very, very clear. Um, uh, and so that the Bible unequivocally condemns any violence or abuse or threats, intimidation within the family. Unequivocally, it condemns that. So husbands, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Love our wives and not be harsh with them, Colossians 3 tells us. Um, if you're someone who has been affected by domestic violence in any way, uh, can I urge you to seek help, um, to, to speak to me, someone qualified, uh, to help in that way? That would be good. Okay, let's speed things up a little bit. Uh, the rest of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul then goes on to apply this verse, which, as I said, forms the framework of all that follows. So uh, we're up to point two in our outline, but we are going to go through. 
The first application is about prophecy and prayer in the church meetings. We see it in verses 4 to 6. Again, it's a little bit controversial, but we need to try to be clear on what this prophecy was. What we need to be clear on what, what is New Testament prophecy, and therefore what's prophecy today. It's not Old Testament prophecy, that's for sure, isn't it? Uh, Old Testament prophecy was given, and the word of God was given to specific people at specific times, specific places. And if you disobeyed an Old Testament prophet, it was like disobeying the God and in the Old Testament false prophets were stoned but in the New Testament what we see is they're weighed up and evaluated, they're quite different now the risk of stating the obvious New Testament prophecy was clearly public and it was verbal uh, if it was genuine it was encouraging and pointed to the truth of the gospel men and women could prophesy in the church gatherings, that's different than teaching, uh, I think uh, actually I'll get to that in a moment in a moment um, a prophecy is always under the control of the speaker, so it's never involuntary, it's, it's not ecstatic, in other words, it's not out of control or just crazy. Do we have it today? That's the question we want to ask. Do we have prophecy today? I think we just had it just then. I think Michelle prophesied. Um, uh, testimonies also, they point to the work of Christ in someone's life. That's a classic example of modern day prophecy, I think. Uh, missionaries returning and, re and sharing uh, God's work from the mission field. That's prophecy. It points to the gospel, points to God's word. Um, perhaps even as a simple as someone being interviewed about being a Christian at work and how God is changing them to be more like Jesus. That's an example of prophecy. All right, let's go to head coverings. Uh, another application of this verse that Paul gives. Why, why does Paul say women must cover their heads and when, when they prophesy and pray and men not. I think we've already got the answer pretty close, haven't we? But remember, fa fashion is not the issue, all right? Uh, it's what it symbolises that matters most. It's the meaning that matters. So whatever the item was, and we're really not quite sure what it was. Was it a veil? Was it a scarf? Was it a hat? Um, we, we, was it a type of hairstyle which included clothing but lifted the hair up? Oh, really not quite sure. Um, Whatever the item was, it was a piece of clothing with meaning. Now, that's not hard for us to grasp, is it? You, you can, you know, in the military, there's clothing with meaning. Um, in the police force, there's clothing with meaning. I think um, if you're a nurse years ago, might even be the same today, I don't know. If there's types of hats they used to wear that, that, had, that indicated, I'm looking at, you know, you guys, the ones, that, that indicated that how experienced you were or something like that. I'm getting a nod. I'll take that. Thank you, Dennis. Um, so... Whatever this piece of clothing was, it symbolised for Christians, Christians in first century Corinth, authority and order of gender relationships in the Christian community. Paul now gives six reasons for this application of the truths of verse 3. We're not going to do all six, all right? Uh, might come up in the question and answer time. We'll see how we go. We'll look at the first two, God's order. The most fundamental reason for this uh, garment was that it represented the ordered relationships between men and women that reflected the relationships of the relationship of Christ and God. And we've, we've talked a lot about that already. In one sense, the garment was to teach and to remind them of their roles and responsibilities, not only in marriage, but also in the church community. The second reason uh, for this application that Paul gives is creation. We see it in verses 7 to 9. So Paul's reasoning takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. 
that's important. His reasoning is not the culture of the day. Let's read verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 7, Paul is not saying that woman is not made in the image of God. Important to note. Paul's focus is actually on the word glory. So how is, the, how is woman the glory of man? Can I say I love this next bit? If you've switched on, come back with me. I love it. It's because as Genesis teaches, the woman whom God brings to the man in marriage brings him so much joy. I love it. It's true from Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2. His days of loneliness are gone. What the animals could never be for him, this beautiful fellow human being of the opposite sex is. It's his glory. She is his glory. It's beautiful. She is bone of my bone. This is what the, the man sings. Flesh of my flesh. She is woman because she is taken from man. Adam's love song, when confronted with God's gracious gift to him, is but the first of a million love songs in all cultures inspired by the beauty of a man and a woman in one another's eyes. This is what one writer said. He said, uh, She is his glory since she fulfills him and his deepest wellsprings of, of companionship, sexual fellowship and shared procuration. I love that. Now, Paul gives four more reasons why, that I don't really have time to go into today. Uh, angels, nature, tradition, universal practice. Uh, if you want to ask a question about that in Q&A, you can or you can catch me at morning tea. But I love what Paul closes with in verses 11 and 12. He says, men, don't get big heads about this. Don't get big headed about it. This is not a mandate for any kind of oppressiveness. Look at verse 11. He says, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. See, we are dependent on each other. We need each other. This is not an opportunity to get a big head and say, man, I'm in charge, I'm the man. You've missed the point anyway, haven't you? Uh, we are dependent on each other. We need each other. So let's, let's finish up. What, what do we do in church then? What, what, what do we do now? Uh, what do we make of all this? Michelle and I have got some friends in Scotland. They go to a church um, where the women cover their heads as they come into church. Um, are they doing the right thing? Uh, is this what the Bible is saying? Should the women here also cover their heads and make sure they've got long hair? Uh, well, if that's what your conscience tells you to do after you've wrestled with this passage and you've prayed about it, then you should cover your head. However, I think there's a few reasons why I don't think it's necessary. First, we really don't know what the head covering was. Um, we're really only guessing. We also can't be sure that what we, what we want to communicate will actually be communicated. So a hat... Well, if you wear a hat, a hat might just look, look like you're being sun smart. Um, or it might look like you're visiting the Queen after church. Or you're going to, a fun or going to the races. That's where you wear hats. Um, it's, not really what, it's not clear on what you want to communicate. A scarf or a veil, well, that also might be confused with Islamic dress. Or maybe it was just a hairstyle. But even then, a hairstyle would hardly communicate anything in particular these days. There's lots of different hairstyles. I'm actually not sure in our culture that there's a single item of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century head covering. Uh, 
a garment that indicates I'm a woman, I'm happy to be a woman and I accept God's order of relationships between men and women. In the end, what it means is that we ought, not, ought to not blur the lines, whether it be in dress or even behaviour, of the distinctions between men and women that God has ordained. We need to know our culture well. That's what we need to do. So it's clear that men are men and women are women. We need to make sure as we meet together that we express these differences and we communicate our acceptance of them. And when it comes to, when it comes to fashion, now I'm no fashionista, you might have noticed that already, um, when it comes to fashion, that's a little bit, I don't know, it's a bit tough in our culture, isn't it? Men's and women's fashions in clothing and even in hair are sometimes quite similar. So, for example, women having short hair, well, that's actually quite feminine in our culture. Uh, there's a lot of women who have short hair and it looks really nice. Um, and in other cultures around the world, some women have short hair for very practical reasons and, and good reasons. So just cutting your hair short wouldn't really communicate what we want it to, or having our hair up wouldn't really communicate what we want it to do. Or having long hair wouldn't communicate what we want it to communicate. Uh, but I think it's fair to say simply that maybe if we summarise, men don't dress as women and women don't dress as men. And we've got to try to work out what that means. Um, when we meet for church, we don't gather to make that sort of statement or protest. We still need to acknowledge that our clothing says something about us. But what's really important is not to find an item of clothing or hairstyle that ticks the box. Um, that misses the point. That misses the point of the, of the passage. Uh, and it goes down a legalistic path too. No, no, when we gather together, we ought to be clear that we, we trust in God's good order. That's going to be hard too sometimes. We trust in God's good order to, in regards to men and women, our identity and our roles. I'm going to pray for us and uh, then we'll see if you've got a question. You might have a question. This is a good opportunity to ask a question if you need to. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we know that sometimes it is tricky and this, this uh, a teaching, Lord, about men and women is hard. Uh, for some people, it's going to be hard for a long time. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom, you give us patience, uh, you give us humility un under your word. Um, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who cares for us and loves us. Help us not forget that, not to forget that. Uh, we know that you're in control and we want to trust you in everything. So, Lord, pl please help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.